I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Well, hey there, Prakopton. In Wednesday's episode, we got a little deep into free will, freedom of choice and such. And boy, did that cause a great consternation in the Discord community. A lot of people felt that I went too far. They felt I was too chaotic in my, I don't know how I want to put it, my expression of how I felt about this particular issue. I was too emotional. And I'm going to go ahead and have to admit that, yes, I was pretty emotional when I created that episode because I was, as I said at the outset, I was in a snit. I was upset. And the reason I was upset is because I really perceive that there is a significant threat in communicating, especially to young people who are already very disenfranchised in general and very disempowered in general by a lot of media narrative and political narrative and narrative online that you can get from any influencer, right? Any internet influencer. I perceive there to be a considerable threat to those people if they are told on top of already being disenchanted and disempowered that they don't have a freedom of choice, that they are not in control of their own choices. I think that is a bad thing to do. And since hundreds of thousands of people listen to this podcast every month, I feel perhaps more than certainly more than most people feel a large responsibility in how I present stoicism on this particular front. That said, my emotional response was still a unstoic emotional response. And so I need to, I think, maybe an apology is too far, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to apologize for being off the cuff and raw in my initial discussion where I think I said the Stoics were idiots in some ways, which, you know, I think the Stoics were not idiots. What I should have said is that the ancient Stoics were, through no fault of their own, very ignorant of a lot of things that they could not have known about because the corpus or full body of human knowledge just wasn't then what it is now. But I was in a snit. Like I said, I was in a snit. So I got a little heated. I said some things. I'm not going to delete those things. Those are the things I said, but I'm sorry if it made anybody feel like I was talking about them specifically because that wasn't my goal. The entire conversation or episode stemmed from a personal feeling of responsibility, re not 
further disempowering or disenfranchising the young people, especially, who listen to this show. Okay, now, with that said, I spent about a day and a half doing some very deep reflection on whether or not I was going to continue to do this podcast. I want to make it very clear that this is so important to me. That is to say free will, which I'm going to define very specifically as the ability to choose. And I'll talk about that a little bit before we get into today's very long episode with William Stevens. It is very important to me because in a philosophy that is all about choice, the choices we make, and the active and elective pursuit of virtue, to say that we do not have the ability to freely choose is to create a philosophy that is nonsensical, in my view. It is nonsensical to say, hey, here's a philosophy all about choice, which also tells you that you have no choice. That, to me, is absurd, and I would not continue to put forward or try to advance a philosophy of that nature. And so, when I made that episode, Wednesday's episode, I was worried, so there was some fear mixed into that episode, I was worried that maybe I had been doing that and that I was going to have to stop doing that. Now, me stopping this podcast is a really big deal. It's more of a big deal to me, financially speaking, <laughs> and like whole life purpose speaking, than quitting a podcast probably is for most other people who have podcasts, right? Because most podcasts are hobbies for most podcasters. They are not their whole, their whole job. They're not their whole income. They're not, you know, they're not as married to the product that they put out as an audio product as I am. However, as a principled person, which I believe myself to be, if I landed on the conclusion that stoicism was incompatible with a freedom of choice, what I call free will, but again, I'll clarify that a bit more in a second, I was going to just drop it because like I said, I'm a principled person. If I had to let it go, I had to let it go. I wasn't going to be a charlatan and teach a thing I didn't believe. And I wasn't going to be enabling what I thought was the further disenfranchising and disenchantment and disempowerment of young people. I didn't want to participate in that. Now, here I am with, I think, like an hour-long episode so I must have landed on an answer that was satisfactory and prevented me from having to abandon this entire project, which I'm very relieved to say, not least because this is my living, right? That's important. I've got a baby on the way, you know, to up and quit this podcast would be in alignment with my role as a human being if it was necessary, but would be really difficult for me to do and would have far-reaching negative impacts on my family. So I was worried. So in today's episode, which did not start off as a recording of an episode, it was me having a conversation with William Stevens as a friend, and then realizing about 20 minutes into the conversation that the conversation we were having was one that should be an episode. And I am also trying to engage two other very high-profile Stoic academics, whom I will not name because I don't want to get anybody too excited because their answers may well be no, to weigh in separately on this very topic to kind of put the issue to bed that free will does exist in Stoicism and that Stoics are not hard determinists. I know that these two people feel that way, but whether or not they'll come onto this show to talk about that is a different matter entirely. So in this episode, which may be one part of one or one part of three, if those other people will agree to participate, I talk with William Stevens about how Stoicism is not hard deterministic. It is instead a compatibilist philosophy. 
that free will, which again, I will further define in just a second, is compatible with chains of causation, the idea of fate in Stoicism anyway. So how am I defining very specifically free will? Because it is different than how most people conceptualize free will. Free will, when you and I say it outside of a Stoic context in contemporary times, means that we can will our will to be done. If I want to throw a football, then I have free will to throw the football. And in practice, it would seem that most of the time we do. However, in Stoicism, the Stoics would say that is not up to us. That is not something we own. We cannot actually control throwing a football because our body is not ours. It is not up to us. What happens to our body as we go to grab a football or when we throw the football or when we attempt to throw the football is not up to us. We could have a stroke. We could have a muscle spasm. Our fingers could seize up. Our wrist could you know, seize up as well. And we could not with 100% assurance, carry out our will. And so in that case, from a Stoic perspective, we do not have free will when you define it that way. That is of no concern to me. I was already on board with that idea. When I say free will, being a Stoic myself, what I mean is not what I just described. What I mean is the ability to make our own choices, our choices. No one else can make these choices for us. They are ours. So when I say free will, I mean freedom to choose, freedom of choice, free completely from coercion or being forced to choose one way or another, be that by an external force or by quote unquote causal chains. That is what I'm talking about when I say free will on this podcast. And to be frank, it is the only free will I really care about. Thankfully, as you will hear in my conversation with William in just a minute, it is the case that in Stoicism, this is true, that we have freedom of choice. And in fact, it is, as I suspected and don't know how I allowed myself to get so frustrated over the idea that it might not be the case, that freedom of choice is compatible with the Stoic view of fate and causal chains, etc. Now, William is going to do a very good job, far better than I could do, of explaining why that is the case. And I would like to just remind everyone of William's credentials. He is the Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Creighton University. He is an academic. He has dedicated his life and I do almost mean his entire academic career, when I say his life, I mean his academic life, to the study of Stoicism, and in particular, to Epictetus and, broadly, Stoic ethics. So this guy, and the other two people that I hope to have on this podcast as a three-part series, but I can't promise, certainly know more about Stoicism than do your average internet influencers, to include your above-average internet influencers, which I hope includes me, but maybe I'm just one of the average ones, and if we're going to be taking notes from anyone, it should be from people like, for example, William Stevens, or for example, Kai Whiting, or for example, A.A. A. Long, or for example, Chris Gill. These are people that we should look to as authorities in our contemporary times. These people are the Ciceros and the Zenos and the Diogenes Laertae, I'm going to pluralize his name that way, <laughs> of our contemporary times. And so if we're willing to look to those more ancient folks that I just named, we should be equally willing to look to and listen to these contemporary names that I just named. 
And William Stevens is one of them. I just want to make that clear so that no one is thinking I've just got some random guy who happens to agree with me on the show. William and I are friends. He's a Stoic academic. He's dedicated his whole life, his whole academic career to Stoic ethics. And it just so happens, thankfully, that he does agree with me. Otherwise, this would have been a much less enjoyable discussion for me. And so with that, we will now listen to a few ads and then what William has to say. Again, please remember that the first 20 minutes of this is going to be set up kind of narratively where I say, and then I asked William this, and then I'll cut in William's audio. Because for the first bit of this conversation, I wasn't aware I was going to release it as a podcast episode. And then at some point, those narrations will stop, those setups will stop, and then it will just be a conversation between me and William. The entire runtime of which is about 50 minutes, maybe a little more. And before the ads, I do have to thank one new patron, that is Daniel Vyong Holm. I hope I've said your name correctly, Daniel. Thank you for becoming a new patron. If you are not currently a patron of this show, please go to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. As I said at the beginning of this episode, one of the reasons it was stressful to me to be going through this process of figuring out whether or not stoicism had space for free will as I defined it, freedom of choice, is because as a principled person, I was going to have to walk away from the project if it didn't, because it felt irresponsible of me to do anything other than that, if that had been the case. So this is my full-time job, and it's made my full-time job through ads and through elective patron support. And so if you want to get rid of the ads, you can support me directly by supporting me through Patreon by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. But if you don't want to support me, then you have to tolerate the ads, which you will hear throughout the duration of this episode. Either way, either by listening for free or by listening as a patron, you are supporting me. So support me through Patreon or support me by listening or support me by sharing this with your friends. It is important to me. It is my full-time job. I don't have another job. So thank you again to Daniel Vong Holm. I really appreciate the support. And thank you to anyone who decides to become a patron in the future. You'll get a shout out on this show, just like Daniel did. And with that, here are a couple of ads and then we'll get into the conversation with myself and William Stevens. I hope you enjoy it. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when William and I initially started the call, the first thing I wanted to ask him about was lecta, which are otherwise known as sayables, but I'll let him say more about lecta. The reason that this is where I started the conversation was because I suspected that if I was going to find free will within Stoicism, again, free will as I defined it at the outset of this episode, I was going to need, or I thought I was going to need, to show that lecta were in the same grouping as void, time, and place, which are some things which are not bodies. Now, this is already the case. I already knew that lecta were not bodies, but I wasn't sure if that extended to or included thought. I didn't know if lecta was the word we spoke or the thought we had, or if it was both. I was under the impression that it was only the words we spoke. After they were spoken, they became lecta. Here's what William has to say about lecta in particular. Lecta are very important in the Stoic psychology of action and the philosophy of mind. And this is, this is how they work. If you're a rational being, you have your five senses, you have the hegemonicon, you have your power of speech and your, your power of reproduction. These are the seven parts of the soul, according to the Stoics. And of course, souls are physical. They are bodies, right? And they causally interact with the flesh, bone, and blood and your nerves in your body, which are also physical. Only physical things can causally interact with other physical things. So only bodies can causally interact with other bodies. And since your human body is a body and your soul interacts with it, your soul has to be a body too. Lecta are sayables. They are propositions that are composed of words that subsist, but they do not exist. Bodies exist, but lecta, void, space, place, and time subsist. They're real, but they are not bodies. And so this is how the Stoics account for the mind's ability to grasp a lecton, which is a proposition or a sayable, and the synkatathesis, the faculty of assent, gives you the power to either assent to that proposition or reject it or suspend judgment, suspend assent. The next thing I asked William was whether or not this ascent was itself a body, or if it was like a lecta, an incorporeal, that is to say, not a body. It's an ability of the rational soul. So it's what, it's what a rational soul can do. It's an activity or ability or faculty or function, right? Yeah. So it's like grasping, right? My hand exists because it's a body. Well, what is the existence of the flexing of my hand? Well, it's what my hand can do. It's an ability of my hand when it's attached to my wrist and my arm the right sort of way in a living body. So is the flexing 
a non-physical event? Well, no, it's just it's just an activity of a body. So similarly, I mean, for, for non-reductive physicalists, which is a kind of a metaphysical position, non-reductive physicalists would say thinking is just what brains and bodies do. Thinking is not a, it, it's not an activity, which is some sort of non-physical thing. The fancy word for making a thing out of something that's just an activity is to reify, R-E-I-F-Y. And this is what platonic dualists do. They think, well, you know, souls and, and minds think, and thinking is non-physical. Therefore, souls and minds must be non-physical. Stoics say, no, that's a confusion. Thing, human beings, rational human adults, can do lots of things. We can sing, we can dance, we can walk, right? We can talk, we can throw a football, catch a baseball, all that stuff. But we can also think, we can also desire, we can also want things and dream, and we can remember things. These are all activities of a physical being. And, these are, and these are not things which are predetermined? No, no. Where does that predetermination stop? That's the gap I'm trying to find. Okay. Stoics <clears throat> do believe in fate, but remember that fate is just another name for providence. And providence is another name for Zeus, God, the gods, destiny. All of these are different words for what? For the metaphysical active principle. And the active principle is what pervades all things in the world and organizes them, binds them together. And what is being bound together is the passive principle, which we call matter. So we've got the, the we've got the the spermaticos lagos, the the craftsmanlike creative fire, which pervades, which is also that's the same active principle, which pervades all of matter and binds it together. And when you're dealing with inert things like rock and piles of sand and things like that, then what holds them together is just this active principle and this tanos, this tension, which holds a rock together. But once you have something like a plant, you have a living thing, then you've got some soul in it, right? Even, even plants have souls, according to the Stoics, because they have to have something which makes them alive. What's the difference between a living plant, a living tree, and a dead tree? The dead tree has lost its pneuma that bound it together, drawing nutrients from the soil and water from the environment, feeding its sap and everything, right, to make its leaves grow and fall in the, in the winter and then grow back in the spring. So plants have a kind of plant-like soul. Here they're following Aristotle, right? But according to the Stoics, plants don't have desires, they don't want water and nutrients, but squirrels do want water and nuts. And so since squirrels have desires, they have a different kind of soul. They have an animal kind of soul, so they have desires. But what happens with the, with the squirrel, according to Stoic psychology, is that when it receives its fantasii and it just it's hungry, it hasn't eaten in a while, and when it sees the nut, that sense impression, that fantasia immediately triggers the horme, the desire to go eat the nut, and it goes for it. It runs to the nut and grabs it, okay? What distinguishes you and me from the squirrel is that when you're a rational adult human being, we formulate that sense impression of seeing that nut, 
right? That walnut. And as a lecton, this is a walnut which I should eat now. And now we have the proposition. Now we have the sayable that we've grasped with our mind, triggered by that sense impression, because we have rational minds. So we have a different experience of the nut than the squirrel does. The squirrel doesn't have free will. If it's hungry and it sees a nut, it's gonna, that's gonna immediately trigger its response to go for the nut. But for us, even if we're hungry right now, Bill and Tanner might decide, yeah, eating a walnut would be delicious right now, but we're doing high-level philosophical discussion. We are not going to assent to the impression that eating a snack now is appropriate for us, and we are exercising our freedom of assent. Okay. I love this because it means I don't really have any work to do. Stoics are compatibilists when it comes to choice and freedom and determinism. So this idea that of, of the causal chain, it seems yeah. like maybe there's a lot of misunderstanding in my Discord community about what exactly that means. So let's talk about, let's talk about freedom and determinism. In, in philosophy, there are uh, three basic positions, and then there are modifications or variations of, of some of them, okay? So there's... There are hard determinists, there are soft determinists, also known as compatibilists, and then there are libertarians. Hard determinists, this is, this is a, a, a philosophical position, which it, it's easy to think that the Stoics are hard determinists. Hard determinists hold that given the set of antecedent conditions leading up to an event, there's one and only one effect that will result from those antecedent conditions and causes. And this is true of every past event. It's true of every event in the present, and it will be true of every event in the future. If it's true of every event in the future, then everything is fully causally determined from the beginning of time because this causal chain is continuous and there are no missing links. And that means the birth of your child was faded thousands of years ago, even before you were born, it was fated that you and Ross are going to have a little baby. Because given the antecedent conditions in the universe before you even met Ross, it was fated that you and she would hit it off, fall in love, and express that love in the most natural way in the world. So here, next, I wanted to make sure, I wanted to have William make it clear, because I wasn't sure at the time, and maybe you're not either as you listen, whether or not this was the traditional Stoic view or not. Here's what he said. They they are not hard determinists, because the problem with hard determinism is, is it seems to take the science of cause and effect very, very seriously, but then it doesn't leave any room at all for human freedom. And if it's not the case that even some human actions are free, then it seems to follow from that that there's no such thing as moral responsibility. If each of us is fated to do exactly what we do when we do it, then then nobody's morally responsible for anything they do because nothing they do is caused by their free choice. Now, for the ancient Stoics, they don't have the same kind of notion of freedom that we do. Ours is very heavily influenced by medieval thought and the Enlightenment and that sort of thing. 
So they have slightly different concepts that they're operating with. They don't have a notion of the will quite the same that we do. It started, they're getting closer to that with Seneca's account of voluntas, something that's done in a voluntary way. And with Epictetus, of course, as you mentioned um, in your email to me, you've got the prohiresis, which is the faculty of volition. That's the way Tony Long and I like to translate it. Um, W.A. Oldfather, of course, calls it moral purpose. Wow, moral purpose. It's related to right moral responsibility, so you can see why he would translate it that way. Others just translated will or choice, the faculty of choice. I think Dobbin translates it choice. But I like volition. Long translates it volition. So what, what is that for Epictetus? Well, that's the real you. That's where freedom, that's where, that's the locus of your freedom, according to Epictetus, is your prohiresis. You are your prohiresis. So it's with your prohiresis that you make decisions, that you make choices. You form your beliefs um, based on the sensory impression you get and your experiences and all the rest. So Stoics are compatibilists. That is, they believe they are so, also called soft determinists. What does that mean? They believe that causal determinism is true and human beings choose some of their actions and so are morally responsible for those actions that they choose. So they believe that freedom and causal determinism are both true. They're compatible. That's why they're called compatibilists. Within Stoic philosophy, that seems to be strictly an Epictetian idea, but Aristotle had talked about it long before. Is that true, or did the Stoics yes. before Epictetus also talk about this, or did they reject the idea? Excellent question. Excellent question. Yes, you are correct. Aristotle uses the term too, but not the way that Epictetus does. And we do not have any textual evidence that earlier Stoics used prohiresis the way that Epictetus does. We don't see it in Musonius Rufus. He doesn't mention prohiresis. We don't see it in Seneca, of course, because he's writing in Latin. And when he does talk about voluntas, it's a little bit different. And in the early Stoics, it, in, in Cicero, again, writing in Latin with some Greek terms, you know, reporting on Panitius in what, in, in Deofikiis, um, we don't have prohiresis in Cicero, and so it, it seems we might not have had it in Panitius or Posidonius. We don't have it in Zeno or Chrysippus, or certainly not Cleanthes. He Cleanthes was not into that sort of thing. He was very much into the theology, of course, in his hymn to Zeus and what we know about him anyway. So yes, prohiresis in Epictetus's sense is unique to Epictetus in the discourses and the handbook. And so, yeah, so it's it's special to Epictetus, but he uses it in a different sense than Aristotle does. Does this mean that we have a sharp division, R-E, free will, in as much as they would have defined it differently than we do in a contemporary context? Does this mean that we have... Let's say freedom. Let's say not free will. Let's say we have freedom. Okay. We have freedom of assent. D does that mean that to the ancient Stoics, we did not have freedom of assent and only... Epictetus and beyond in Stoicism, do we have freedom of assent? Is that the division? Th this is what I'll say about the notion of freedom. We do know that Chrysippus wrote about this stuff, 
And it's in Chrysippus that we have expressed this idea of co-fating. An event, a human action is co-fated. It's fated by the organization of the universe and factors beyond our control, but it's also fated by our human ascents, A-S-S-E-N-T-S, what we assent to, our in effect, our choices. And so he uses the famous example of the cone and the cylinder, right? Chrysippus says, look, human beings react to things in similar ways, but also different ways. Not everybody behaves the same all the time, but we behave in largely the same ways most of the time, right? So what distinguishes the behavior of some human beings from that of others? Well, we have different characters. Those of us who are pro-coptontes, right, are making progress towards virtue. And those of us who are committed to Stoicism are trying to acquire virtue over the long haul. In contrast to those people that think Stoicism is stupid, wrong, or dangerous, right? So criminals, people who are nasty, they behave differently. Um, and so what accounts for that? Well, people have different moral characters. So consider a cone. If a cone is sitting on its base, it's not going to move on a flat surface, right? But if you tip this cone over and it falls, it's going to move in a circle, right? Because it's shaped like a cone. So you've got what accounts for the motion of the cone? Two different things. The proximate cause is it's being knocked over, but it's internal or intrinsic to the cone because of its shape that when it's knocked over, it rolls in a circle, right? So the shape of the cone is like its character and it moves the way it does, both because of how it's knocked over and because of its intrinsic shape, okay? Contrast that with the cylinder. If a cylinder is standing on end on a flat surface, it's not gonna move. But if you knock over the cylinder, it's gonna roll straight, right? Because of its shape. So again, you've got the external cause of it's being knocked over. That's the that that's likened to the sense impressions that we receive and the lecta that we formulate with our minds, these sayables, these propositions that we're considering assenting to or not. But then whether we assent to them or not, that's going to depend on our shape, right? Our moral character. So what determines the shape of our character? Nature and nurture. But but not causal things, not experiences? Well, no, that's what I mean by nature and nurture. You are going to be a very loving father, right? You're going to lavish love and attention and care and, in, and instruction on your child, right? So that's the nurture. Your child is going to get that good nurturing, right? But your child also has genes. It's got its genetic inheritance. Half of your chromosomes half of Ross's chromosomes. That's the nature, right? It's going to be half you and half her. But that's a distortion. Why? Because it's going to be raised in a different environment that you were raised in and a different environment that she was raised in. So genetically, it's half you and half her, but that's only the nature part. The nurture part is its environment, right? What friends is it going to make as it grows up? What kind of schooling is it going to get, right? What kind of a British accent is it going to have in Newcastle, right? 
it's going to sound a little bit different than mommy and daddy, daddy, because of, you know, the other people that it talks to as it's growing up and all the rest, right? So that's the nature and the nurture. These are the experiences, right? So you have the experiences. That's the nurture part. And so the experiences that it has plus its genetic inheritance are going to combine to form a link of causes and effects leading up to its development into a rational being, according to the Stoics, when it'll have this capacity to assent to lecta, to assent to sayables. Okay. I like this a lot. I'm very happy with these answers. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad that that's where this is going and not me crying myself to sleep tonight. So characters determined by experiences, those experiences will include some things that may have been causally faded from the beginning of time, but will largely include experiences derived from other people's freedom of action and choice, not freedom of action, well, freedom of choice. Right, because- But, 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 it, but before yeah. Epictetus, did they view it the same way? Did Chrysippus or Cleanthes say that, that, that those experiences included freedoms? Or did they specifically say, oh, it's just the- were they hard determinists? I think that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. No, Stoics were, they're compatibilists. So, From the so beginning. This is, what, this is what I'm leading up to with the co-fading. So when you choose to perform an action, when you choose to act or react a certain sort of way, that action as a physical event of your body in the world, moving in the world, right? Something that you're saying or doing, whatever, right? That event, that action that you've chosen is fated both by your character and by the universe bombarding you with the sense impressions that you receive. And so experience isn't just what's happening to you with these causes coming in from the external world. And experience includes how you react to those sense impressions. So when you experience something, Part of it is you reacting to what's happening to you. And experience isn't just these beyond your control causes bombarding on you. It is those plus your reaction. And your reaction involves your thinking about how you ought to respond, what your values are, what, what you're trying to achieve with your life and your, and your tasks and your actions, right? So experience includes your reaction to those sense impressions that you perceive. So would you agree, would you be willing to say that in Stoicism, full stop, whether it's Stoicism prior to Epictetus or Stoicism after and during Epictetus, that Stoics believe in a human being's freedom to choose? Yes, absolutely. They're compatibilists. So what's the third camp? So we talked about hard determinists and fatalism, right? And the Stoics can be misinterpreted as fatalists that no matter what you do, things are going to happen the way they're going to happen and events, including all human actions, are fated. This, this is an example of this that the Stoics talked about is the lazy problem. The lazy problem is, look, it's wintertime now, and there are viruses and flu bugs going around and the common cold and all the rest. Well, you're either fated to get sick or you're fated to get better. So if you find that you're sick, then there's nothing you can do about it. Because if you're sick, fate has determined whether you'll get better 
and recover from that illness or whether it'll kill you. And so you can just be lazy and be passive. This is a mistake. Why? Because you do have the option of getting medicine from a doctor. And if you do that, then guess what? That was fated too. So it could be that you're fated to recover, yes, but your recovery is contingent upon you seeing a doctor and getting proper medicine and treatment. And you can assent to the sayable, I ought to go see a doctor and get some medicine, right? So that's how you solve the lazy problem. And here's the point from the epistemic perspective, from the perspective of what you can know. We don't know the future. Since we don't know the future, we have to decide what to do anyway. And yes, our decisions are influenced by our past history and our character and external events beyond our control. But we still have to decide. We still have to deliberate about how to act, what the smart thing to do is in any circumstance. And since we have to deliberate, obviously, this involves thinking through options of what I could do or not do. And so this is, this is where the action is. This is where human freedom arises. We have to figure out what to do. Even if you believe that fatalism is true, you still have to decide what to do. Now, a fatalist is going to say, oh, it's an illusion. When you're deciding and deliberating, it's an illusion that you have the freedom to do X, Y, or Z because you're fated to do Z. Well, but you don't know what Z is. So you still have to deliberate. Hence, compatibilists saying, no, some of your actions are free. Use your rationality to weigh your options and pick the one that you think is best in the circumstance. The third type of position on freedom and determinism is libertarianism. And this is the view that we're free. Causal determinism, it doesn't affect human action at all. It might affect you know, things like gravity when you're dropping heavy objects. So if you jump off a building, you're not free to fly away and land softly. You're going to plummet. But the libertarian is going to say, yeah, you're, you're free to act. There's no fatalism or causal determinism with inter which interferes with your choices. You have freedom to behave any way you want. And, and, this is, and this is another type of response, which is indeterminism. According to metaphysical indeterminism, at least some events have no causal antecedent. They just happen. They're not predictable, even in principle. They're causally indeterminate. Is this making sense? It is making a lot of sense, and you're saving. You're literally saving my whole career right now because I was I was going to delete the server, delete podcast. I was done. <laughs> I was like, if we don't have free will, and I'm telling, and I'm not going to tell people that, and I'm not going to lie to people, so then I just can't do this anymore. We 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 have free prohiresis, free prohiresis. Well, right. If we define free will specifically as freedom of choice. Yes. And uh, and dissenting, then we have yeah. free will as I've defined it. We don't have free will to like move our arm because we don't control our arm. Exactly. 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 So so you're at a buffet. Epictetus uses this example, right? You're at a, you're you're invited to a banquet and you got a big spread. It's Thanksgiving here in the States anyway. I hope you're gonna have some good food today. <laughs> I had lasagna. <laughs> you had lasagna, excellent. <laughs> Fine Thanksgiving tradition. So you've got the spread of food out on the table. You're invited to this banquet, and it's a smorgasbord. You've got this big buffet, right? What are you going to eat? How much are you going to eat? What's causally determined is all those different dishes of food that are on the table, they have their own causal history. 
right? As a vegetarian, I'm going to go for the plant-based options today, right? So, so all the broccoli, all the lentils, all the chickpeas, uh, the bread and the stuffing, the, the, the chestnuts and the stuffing, the onions, all of that stuff, all of these plants were grown and they grew as part of a causal sequence extending back in time for ages, right? So all the food on the plate has its causal history, and then it was harvested, and then it was shipped off to the store, and you know all that stuff, and then it's bought and purchased, and then prepared in the kitchen. So all of that's causally determined, right? They didn't just appear out of nowhere with no explanation, right? But when it comes to my choices of what to eat, of course I have to choose. Am I going to eat at all? Yes, I'm going to eat. Okay, next decision. Which plate am I going to use? This one. I'm choosing which plate. Okay. Get my fork, get my spoon, get my knife. And now I fill the plate. Which dishes am I going to put on the plate and how much? And how quickly am I going to eat, right? How much room am I going to leave for some pie later or whatever, right? Obviously, I'm making all sorts of decisions and choices, right? So this is compatibilism that, yes, events are causally determined and some human actions are chosen by us. I didn't choose to get hungry in any direct way, because I inherit the physiology I do. So human beings get hungry after X number of hours, right? And maybe I have allergies to certain kinds of food. I didn't choose that. That's part of my genetic inheritance too, and how my body has reacted to the environment, right? So those things are not up to me. But how I deal with them, how I cope with them, how I react to my host in offering me food and drink, whether I drink alcohol and how much and which kind and all of the rest. We choose, obviously. And so we're exercising our freedom when we do. And so, and this is the big consequence, as adults, we are morally responsible for our behavior. If I choose to forego eating for too many hours in a row and I get lightheaded and pass out, I'm morally responsible for having not taken care of myself and letting myself get too hungry. If I get dehydrated because I don't drink water when it's available to me, then I'm morally responsible for having become dehydrated. I'm not morally responsible for having the human body I do with its human needs, but how I choose to deal with those needs is up to me. And Epictetus, that's his phrase, right? The things that are f mean up to us, and the things that are uk f mean not up to us. It's fundamental, the fundamental divide between what's up to me and what's not up to me. And making good choices based on that division, that divide, is what determines whether we're good or bad people. So here we're going to take another break because this is a long episode, so I'm going to drop a few more ads in. Uh, my promise was that I'll always try to keep these ads at least 15 minutes apart from each other. I know they're annoying, but hey, they help to support me and this work, so they are important. Let's hear two ads now, and then we'll get back to the conversation with William. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. 
We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Here, there was a little bit of a break for William to get some water because his voice was going hoarse. I really appreciated that he was having this conversation with me on Thanksgiving morning at around 10 a.m. his local time. He lives in Arizona. I was in the UK. So he really went out of his way to have this conversation with me. And part of that is just the fact that William really enjoys talking about this stuff, as I think you can probably tell. But I was at the same time having a chat conversation with a friend of mine, John, who is a moderator in our Discord community, which, by the way, if you don't belong to, you can go to stoicismpod.com forward slash discord and join that for free. And John was wanting to make sure that I asked whether or not William and the ancient Stoics in particular viewed the great cosmic fire, the conflagration, the ekporosis, as not just being cyclical, but when it happens, when it cycles, because it's supposed to happen over and over and over again. For those of you who aren't following me, the ekporosis is this great burning of everything, and then the whole universe resets, and William will say it better here in a minute. But there is the idea in ancient Stoicism, and certainly in a lot of online communities that make their best effort to discuss ancient Stoics and what they're sure they thought, that the reiteration of every cycle happens exactly the same. So I asked William, when the ekporosis cycles, is everything that happens in every cycle exactly the same? Here's what he said. Oh boy, okay, so this brings us to Nietzsche and his doctrine of the eternal return. And according to Nietzsche in, what, the gay science, right? I believe it's in the gay science that he poses this puzzle And of course, as a philologist, he read the Stoics, so he knows about this stuff. So the Stoic doctrine, for Nietzsche, it's imagine that some night uh, a demon appeared to you and said, your every action, your every experience, your whole life, as you're experiencing and living it right now, is going to be repeated forever into into eternity. Your whole biography from birth till death, everything that you do, everything that you live through, you're going to repeat over and over and over again. And here's the challenge of the eternal return. What is the relationship between you and your life? Is it such that you would respond to this demon, this spirit, and say, thank you. This is awesome news. This is exactly the life I want to live. I embrace it. I affirm it. This is, in the Latin, amor fati, love of fate. I love the life that I'm fated to live, not just once, but over and over and over again for eternity. Or would your response to the demon be, oh, you dirty bastard. What horrible, horrible news. 
what a curse that you've just laid on me, that you've cursed me to relive this horrible life where I've made so many mistakes and I have so many regrets about what I've done and how I've chosen to live that I have to relive the same bad movie over and over and over again. And Nietzsche asks, which is going to be your reaction? This is the eternal return or the doctrine of eternal recurrence, right? Are you well disposed to your life and you affirm all of it, the good times and the tough times? Or do you pray like hell that this is the only life you have and once it's over, thank goodness it's over and you don't have to repeat it again, right? So how does this relate to the Stoic, to Stoic physics? Yeah, so there's some texts that suggest that after the universe goes through its unfolding every, what, 50,000 years or something like that, according to one text, what happens is all the different elements are consumed by fire. And you have the ekporosis, the world conflagration. And the entire world turns to flame, burns up. No more water, no more earth no more air, fire everywhere, the ekporosis. And the whole cosmos turns into fire, and all that exists then is Zeus and this fire, this cosmic fire. And then what happens is Zeus transforms the fire back into the four elements and all the different solar systems and planets and moons and asteroids and stars and all this other stuff. And the Earth and all these other planets and solar systems in the galaxy reform, and then they go through the same history that they had the last time. So that means each of us then is reborn the same sort of way in the same sequence. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but the thing is, Seneca never talks about this, and Marcus Aurelius never talks about this, and Musonius Rufus and Epictetus never talk about this. These are a few texts from fragmentary reports from the earlier Stoics about the ekporosis and the cosmic cycle and this and that. So I don't know. It's not the sort of thing that the Roman Stoics really worried about. Do you think it's fair to say that this is throwaway? I mean, is it so you're making it sound like this is a text written by Steve that they found in the trash one day? <laughs> and it's and it's ruining everything. Or, or was this was this fragmentary bit found by like written by Zeno, and it's one of the fragments we have from him or from Chrysippus? Or from I don't know which fragment scholars tend to or which author, which Stoic they ascribe this to. So I don't know if they're ascribing it to Chrysippus or Zeno or Cleanthes or whatever. But what I was suggesting was that given again. We, we have a very, when you, when you look at the evidence that we have from uh, Stoic texts to try to piece together our understanding of ancient Stoicism, it is not homogeneous. It's very heterogeneous. We have only a few fragments that are reported by later authors, many of whom are hostile to Stoicism, reporting or ascribing to Zeno and Cleanthes and Chrysippus and these guys and Aristotle these texts, which may have been part of what, uh, much longer books that they wrote. I mean, Chrysippus is said to have written over 700 books, which is just outlandish, hugely prolific. We don't have any one of those books, not one of them, 
We just have tiny, tiny little fragmentary reports of what others say that he said. And so for early Stoicism, our, reconstructing our knowledge of them is very dicey business. It's very heavy lifting for scholars to try to do that. With Panaitius, most scholars think that uh, you know one of his works is reported in large part by Cicero in Deificis, if I'm remembering right. But there are other things by, by, that Panaitius wrote that we don't have, we don't have reports of. We also have fragments about Posidonius. We don't have a lot of stuff from him. All of our knowledge, or sorry, the vast majority of our knowledge, the vast majority of our knowledge of what the all the Stoics thought is relegated to the Roman period. We have lots of texts that we know come directly from Seneca. Seneca's corpus is bigger than Musonius Rufus, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius combined. So we have lots of texts from Seneca, and we're very fortunate for that. And we have Epictetus's some fragments attributed to him and four books of discourses of the original eight, right? Scholars think that originally Epictetus had eight books of discourses, only four of them survived, and we have the handbook. We have Marcus's meditations, or as I argue, it should be called the memoranda. We have Marcus's philosophical journal, right? And his letters with Fronto, but he doesn't really get into philosophical arguments there. And then we have some discourses, some lectures from Musonius and some uh, some fragments from him. Um, so we have a lot more from the late period of the Stoa, a much, much more than we have from either the early or the middle period. And so you have to bear this in mind. So when it comes to this 50,000-year cycle of the ekporosis and repeating all of that, as I said, Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Musonius Rufus, they do not talk about this. It doesn't worry them. that They don't have texts in which they say anything about this. They're not concerned about this doctrine, such as it is, that maybe some of the early Stoics took seriously in speculating in Stoic physics. And so we shouldn't either. We shouldn't worry about it too much, in my view. It's interesting Stoic physics, but it doesn't undercut the ethics. How much time is there between Epictetus and uh, Musonius and Zeno, Chrysippus, and... Uh... Aristotle and those people. How big of a gap is there? Right. So Zeno is like 300 BCE. That's when he started uh, pacing around the painted porch, the Stoa Poikile in the Agora of Athens and started spouting his doctrines. Um, so that's around 300 BCE. And then Panaitius, and then so Aristotle and uh uh, sorry, Cleanthes is next. He's the next scholar. And then you've got Chrysippus, and you've got the debate with Aristotle, who's very cynic-leaning cynic because he thought physics and logic were unnecessary and just brain-drain spider webs, and that all you need is a kind of minimalist Stoic ethics. Um, they're, you know, uh, 3rd, 2nd century BCE, and then you've got uh, in the in the 200s BCE, Panaitius and Posidonius, and uh, and then you know Cicero's Cicero and Seneca. Cicero uh, is in the early for early part. Sorry, the later part of the first century B, uh, BCE, if I remember his dates right. And then Seneca is a contemporary of Jesus, right? Four BCE to 65 or 62, I think. Um, it's CE in the common era or AD 
as it used to be called. And then Epictetus is roughly 55 to 125, 130. And Musonius Rufus, so Musonius Rufus is like, what, 40 years, is about 40 years older than Epictetus. So Epictetus studied with Musonius Rufus. So Musonius Rufus is first century CE. So then there is not a significant gap of time wherein there is an absence of discussion about Stoicism or, or a, an absence of working to advance it. Like there's not a 200 year gap between between Epictetus's writing oh, no. and the reading writing no. previous. No, it's is, continuous. So these guys, each each generation is teaching at least one or two members of the next generation of Stoic thinkers so from is, 300 BCE all the way through to Marcus when you're in uh uh in the in the early 200s yeah the early 200s ce is it fair then to say that even though we don't have the text that it it is at least probable that as the philosophy evolves which i think all philosophy has to do in light of new information it's supposed to otherwise it's a dogmatic religion i think that's one of the things that separates religion from philosophy right is it is it reasonable and plausible to say then that the ekporosis is something that just didn't stand up to the scrutiny of the evolution of the philosophy i'm not saying that's the case i'm saying is it probable to think it was the case there, there are different ways we could interpret musoni seneca musonius rufus epictetus and Marcus Aurelius being large, being basically silent on the topic. We could infer from that, as you're suggesting as a possibility, that they really rejected, they, they just rejected the doctrine. That's one possibility. But another possibility is just that they didn't worry about it, that this was a fine point of Stoic physics from a couple centuries before they were doing their thing, and they didn't challenge it. But they also didn't think it was important for them to write about. They were interested in other things. So it doesn't mean that they rejected it, but it also doesn't mean that they emphasized it. But but wouldn't it be the case that Epictetus would have functionally rejected it? Because if the ekporosis being, not that whether or not it's a real thing, but that it being the same iteration every time, wouldn't that fly in the face of his idea of actually having that freedom of uh, of choice no or, or, for the reason I, for the reason i said before whether this doctrine of this of, of return every fifty thousand years and the whole history of the earth and all human beings on it plays out exactly the same way or not how would we know this is just speculation what we know is that we have lives here now and we have to live them out day by day and we don't know what what's going to happen to us in five or ten or or forty years so we still have to decide now because we don't know the future history of the earth. We don't know our own future history, right? We'd have to live and act and decide and, and make appropriate decisions and make good choices and, and moderate our desires carefully here now in this life. And so well, so let's say let's say that this doctrine is true. Well, I don't know how my life played out 50,000 years ago. Let's say I'm living the exact same life I did 50,000 years ago and 50,000 years before that and 50,000 years before that. Let's say I'm living exactly the same life I did each time. What follows from that? I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I might have some plans, but I don't know what's going to happen. There might be surprises. I don't know how I'm going to react to them. 
I certainly don't know what I'm going to do five years from now. I have long-term goals I hope to achieve, right? I've got to finish writing my biography of Marcus Aurelius the next couple months. That's what I'm focused on. So, but, so here's the question. Well, either Stevens finishes writing his biography of Marcus Aurelius for his publisher by the end of February, or he doesn't. Well, 50,000 years ago, if I'm living the same life now than I did then, then I suppose maybe Zeus knows whether I finish this book by the end of February or not. But I don't know because it it, it depends on what I'm going to do the next 90 days, how hard I'm going to work on it, right? So then there is no part of Stoic physics, logic, any of it, that is dependent upon the idea that ekporosis is cyclical and identical every time. Well, if we interpret the Stoics as strict causal determinists and fatalists, which, as you know, I've argued is not correct because they are compatibilists, right? But if instead we interpret them as strict causal determinists and believing in fatalism, then this doctrine could fit with that scheme that the cosmos, the universe, is causally determined to burn up in fire every 50,000 years and then recoalesce into the elements and so forth. So that would be an event just like any other event. It would be causally determined and faded. But you don't have to accept that particular doctrine in order to defend the, the doctrine of fatalism and stoicism. So you could eliminate that from your account. Or you could say the early Stoics were divided on that issue. Some believed in the 50,000-year cycle. I mean, I think there's another text which suggests that it's it's even longer than that. There's there's some disagreement. I mean, you know, looking at a couple different fragments, whether what the time period is, right? But my I think the bigger point, the bigger takeaway is it, it doesn't interfere with Stoic ethics either way. And so insofar as the Roman Stoics are much more focused on questions in Stoic ethics, they're not troubled by this debate over the conflagration, how often it happens, and whether the eternal, the doctrine of eternal return is correct or not. Here we are going to take one more quick break for two more ads, and then we're going to return to this conversation. I'm going to ask William specifically whether or not we need to specify in our self-identifying as Stoics, in the same way that we do traditional, modern, minimalist, etc., whether we are compatibilist Stoics or hard determinist Stoics, do we need to make that distinction? Is that important if we're going to be consistent in our personal practice of Stoicism? So again, first a couple of ads, and then we'll come back to that question. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's philosophy versus improv. I will be providing a ton of information, just maybe not the information you're expecting. Your hosts, Mark Linsenmeyer of the Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast. Downloaded 50 million times. And Bill Arnett of the Chicago Improv Studio. The author of the book, The Complete Improviser. Have things to teach you. Often with the help of guest philosophers and or comedians. Learn more at philosophyimprov.com. I think it's a great idea. Okay, welcome back. And again, just a refresher in case the ads made you forget. This question, my last to William, is whether or not, as contemporary Stoics, in order to be consistent in our practice of Stoicism, we need to identify as being either Stoics who are deterministic or Stoics who are compatibilist? Is this a necessary distinction when we identify ourselves as Stoics out in the open world, so to speak? Here's what he said. It's another tough question, because that that turns on whether some basic principles of Stoic ethics can be used as a foundation upon which to organize one's life and pursue virtue, regardless of one's position on how foundational all of Stoic physics is for a life committed to Stoic ethics. And what I can tell you is people disagree. (laughs) Yeah, they sure do. We've got people like like Chris Fisher, who defends what, what he calls traditional Stoicism, as I understand his view. So he believes that he reads those ancient texts as suggesting that they're all three parts of the same single system, and either you're a Stoic or you're not. But if you're a Stoic, you have to accept all of Stoic physics as described to us by scholars of Stoicism and Stoic logic. And yes, you can live a life committed to Stoic ethics, but you must believe in divine providence. You must believe in the ekporosis, despite uh, our contemporary scientific understanding of cosmology and black holes. And of course, the ancient Stoics did not know about black holes. They did not have string theory. They did not have any, any sort of notion of dark matter or dark energy. They did not know about subatomic particles like we do. Hell, they didn't even know about viruses the way we do. And so given all of our contemporary scientific knowledge, this is what leads many, many, many modern Stoics to be open to revising lots of different beliefs in ancient Stoic physics, starting with the ekporosis, but including other things as well. This is following our ancient friend Aristo of Chios, who rejected Stoic physics. So there's the tradition of thinking that Stoic physics, including the ekporosis doctrine, and Stoic logic is eliminable goes all the way back to the ancient Stoa, where Aristo rejected it. So modern Stoics can point to him and say, he didn't go for the Stoic physics and Stoic logic stuff, or or let's keep only those parts of Stoic logic that are consistent with our contemporary understanding of logic. Great. And let's keep the non-reductive physicalism of Stoic physics. Great. But we don't have to believe that the hegemonicon is one of seven parts of the human soul. We don't have to believe in pneuma. This is what the contemporary Stoics are going to say. And then the traditional Stoics are going to get all upset and say, well, you're not really a Stoic then because you don't buy into all of Stoicism, but just you're, you're, you're being selective at the smorgasbord. You have to have some of every dish. It does seem as though one could, based on everything we've talked about in this conversation, it does seem as though a traditional Stoic within the, within the vein of traditional Stoicism Again, you said this goes all the way back to the ancient Stoics anyway. 
they could have a disagreement on ekporosis and still both be in the traditional stoic camp. That's possible. And that's possible too. That's right. So what should we take away from that? That if we have a text or a couple texts which discuss the ekporosis, then what follows from that is not that all Stoics embraced it, all ancient Stoics even embraced it, but that some of them floated this as a doctrine. Some of them believed in this. Not all of them, but some of them. Maybe Cleanthes, but not Chrysippus. Maybe Zeno, but not Aristo. Maybe Hecato, but not, you know, Panitius. And so, like Seneca says, you know, we're, we're free to debate these things as Stoics. We, we can all choose to identify as Stoics and not have all exactly the same beliefs on each and every teaching in Stoic physics, in Stoic logic, in Stoic psychology. But it does seem that we have to have enough common ground for it to make sense for us to identify as Stoics rather than some other kind of philosophical camp. First off, I want to thank everybody for listening to this. That's the end of my conversation with William Stevens. And please, if you really resonated with this guy, if you're like, whoa, this dude really knows his stuff, he has a brand new book out called Epictetus's Enchiridion, a new translation and guide to Stoic ethics. He co-authored it with his co-author, Scott Aiken. There's a link in today's show notes so that you can go and check it out. It is an amazing book. I'm in the middle of it right now. It is just incredible. It's a really good book. It's also a dense book. And by that, I mean there's a lot in it. It's not just a new translation. It is a translation paired with an interpretation, paired with like contemporary guidance of what to do with that information. And I think that makes it the first book of its kind. So please do check the link in the show notes to go and get that book if you'd like to add something like that to your bookshelf, which I would hope you would want to. I'm going to wrap this episode up just by saying I am very grateful to William for coming on to discuss this and making it very clear that freedom of choice, which is what I'm referring to when I say free will, is alive and well in Stoicism. That certainly to identify as a compatibilist Stoic is very likely a tradition that goes well into the past into the deep roots, into the origin of Stoicism, that people were very likely, Stoics were very likely having this argument in antiquity. And so in keeping with what is the Stoic tradition to continue to have this argument in contemporary times is well within reason. And so whether you are a Stoic who believes in the ability to make free choices, that you have free will as I defined it, or whether you're not, you're still practicing stoicism and you're still able to call yourself a stoic, probably without having to worry about those distinctions about determinism or compatibilism. I particularly liked that William basically said, we can't know this anyway. It's an unprovable thing. And so why are we worrying about this? Are we going to hedge our bets on the idea that we have to be determinists because that seems silly. We're not going to actually live our lives out that way as if we don't have choice. We're not going to live that way. So what would be the practical point of adopting that viewpoint? Why would you do that? It's not practical. Now, he didn't say exactly those things, but that's what I have inferred from what he said. And I like that. So I am very much still a Stoic, very much still going to be doing this podcast, and hopefully in the future having more interesting and fun conversations with people 
of William Stephen's stature about all kinds of interesting things that go deeper into the weeds of Stoicism than the Monday and Wednesday episodes that cover Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus can really do. Again, thank you to you, William Stevens, for participating. Thank you to all of you for listening and to those of you who support the show by becoming patrons. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. And until next time, cold exit today, just like we had a cold open. No theme music. Straight to the point. And now, straight to the end. Thanks for being here. Take care. <laughs>